All right, so welcome to the second session of the Introduction to Sutta Study. And if you're just listening to the recording and you can't find the first one online, it's because we didn't record it. <laughs> I remembered about halfway through um, that I should be recording and I didn't feel motivated to go grab my phone out of my backpack. So, here we are. Glad you made it to the second one. And... Um, the theme for this evening is going to be meditation practices. So we had last week the foundations that support our being able to engage in meditation practice, to undertake this um, particular kind of training and discipline for the mind. And that included things like daily life practice, um, development of mindfulness, awareness of ethics and karma, the fact that our actions have results. So just getting our lives in order, basically. And then um, we hinted in our in the very last sutta that we looked at that the aim of a what was called a sage, which is us, all of us, is to train the mind. And that's what the Buddha was teaching, is that it's, he knows it's not easy to be a human. He had a human life, too. But um, the solution is not to try to fix completely the outer world, but that there's something that can be done for the inner world. And so he offered us ways to, to train our mind and our heart. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And it's, of course, a completely impossible task to summarize all the practices in one session, but... Uh, to make some attempt at that, we're going to look at four different types of practices, and Chris and I will both be leading different sections, and you had some readings in the email, but if you didn't get to them, I understand, but if you did, that's great, because you may be learning by now that these suttas, kind of the first pass at them, you tend to think, okay, <laughs> and then maybe more comes as you read it again or as you sit with it, so it's just giving you the opportunity to have that process during this class. So the four main types of practices that we'll look at, which are not entirely separate, but we had to break them up somehow, was we'll look at mindfulness practices, which are basically attentional practices, uh, concentration practices, which are designed to stabilize or focus the mind, but we'll talk about what that really means. Uh, heart practices, which many of us are also familiar with, the opening of the heart, the development of the um, understanding of connection between people on a profound level, uh, beyond being nice at the grocery store to the clerk, although including that, of course. And then the fourth would be reflective practices, which might be of interest in that we don't teach them as often why? Because we spend so much time thinking that it's helpful when we get to the meditation center to do the practices that are about letting go of thinking and stabilizing the mind. But even in this tradition, and also in other Buddhist traditions, reflective practices are very important. Practices where we learn to think in particular ways, direct the mind in particular ways. And it's a little different from just sitting down and thinking, or you know, having positive psychology, or whatever. So we'll go over um, we'll go over some of that. So I should stop with the overview because there's a lot to actually cover. Um, 
my other job in this first little segment is to introduce um, overall the Satipatthana Sutta, which is what we're going to look at first. But before, and if you don't have the whole thing, don't worry. I'm just getting it out. Oh, please come in. We have a chair in here. You made it. Welcome. How about right there? Yeah. See, we got exactly the right number of chairs. We planned that. (laughs) Oh, not at all. We're just getting started, and it's being recorded. So, okay. So, um, how many people did actually take a look at the whole Satipatthana Sutta? Okay, so good, a a majority of us. Um, And this. I want to just give an overview of it, and then Chris and I are each going to take one section of it to focus on. So this sutta, um, Satipatthana, you may have heard the word sati, it means mindfulness, and patana means something like foundation or basis, and that's why this sutta is often translated as the foundations of mindfulness. But I think um, Tan Jeff in the sutta that you had online called it frames of reference, which is his, he likes to translate things a little bit differently to tweak our minds a little bit. And that's valuable to have different ways of looking at it. So this is a long sutta. It has, and it's, um, at least if you look at the version in the book, it's broken up into sections so you can understand it a little better. Does the one online have it broken up in sections also? Yeah, okay. Um, This sutta, the reason that we assigned it and that we're going to talk about it is that this is the foundational sutta for the particular way that we do meditation practice in our tradition in the West. It's not that it's not important in other traditions. Actually, it's talked about all through Theravada Buddhism, and even I've heard it referred to in Zen uh, circles, mostly among people who know something about the insight teachings also. But... um, This is very detailed instructions on mindfulness, on how to develop the mind. And if you've ever taken an MBSR course, it's based on this. It's just been secularized and changed to make the vocabulary a little bit more Western-sounding. But you can bet John Kabat-Zinn was using this as his reference. In fact, he got the idea for MBSR during a three-month meditation retreat at Insight Meditation Society came to him while he was on there, hey, we could do this for healthcare. Lo and behold, now it's, what, 40 years later or something? (laughs) Yeah, so this sutta um, has a structure where it's described that there are four different foundations. Actually, there's an introduction before that that Chris is going to talk about that that you shouldn't just skip over. (laughs) But when we actually get to the foundations, what are they? There are four of them. One is the body. That seems clear. The body is a fairly easy place to be mindful of, right? Because our bodily experience is a big part of our day. <laughs> and then, and so that's why that's broken up, actually, into nine different practices that can be done, including our posture, our breathing, our um, movements and you know, activities throughout the day. The 32 parts, Bob teaches the 32 parts of the body meditation straight out of here. Well, there's a variation on it that he does that was developed in Burma. Uh, The elements and then the charnel ground meditations on dead bodies. So this is the whole thing. You're getting the whole thing when you look at the body and all of it. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then there are three other foundations, 
the second being feeling tone, not feelings like emotions, but feeling tone like whether uh, an experience that we're having feels pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And those are pretty much the three options, if you think about it. Um, So, you know, why is that a foundation? It turns out that that is, because we don't often focus on that, and that's one reason, is that that is a place where actually the mind gets hooked. That's the place where we uh, can very easily fall into suffering, because when things are unpleasant, we want to get rid of them. We develop anger and aversion and pushing away very quickly. And when things are pleasant, we very quickly say, I want that, I want more of it, I want it to stay. And so we get hooked into the desire part. So feeling tone is like that hinge point where we can go either way. Um, so that's why the Buddha drew attention to it. Third foundation is the foundation of the mind. And that's, of course, a huge one. <laughs> you know, The mind, it's like so much. Um, but this is a real practice, is to learn to watch our mind. We don't often watch our mind. We have a tendency to just believe our thoughts, assume our emotions are accurate, assume our perceptions are accurate. Um, so learning to develop mindfulness, a simple awareness of what's going on, is very helpful. And there's and in the section on mindfulness of mind, there are guidelines for what things to look for. Is the mind contracted or distracted? Does it have greed or not? Does it have hatred or not? Um, And the flip side is that we're actually supposed to notice a mind that doesn't have certain things in it. That's very important. Very interesting to notice what's my mind like when it doesn't have hatred. Have you ever noticed that? Thich Nhat Hanh says, have you noticed your non-toothache today? (laughs) That would be the body. But this is what we do with the mind. So it starts to develop a skill of noticing absence, which is actually very important because Nibbana is an absence. So if you wanted to notice that, just in case, uh, (laughs) this is a good skill to develop. It's developed in the third foundation. Um, And then the fourth foundation, I'm not going to have time to cover in any detail. We would have to, maybe we'll do a class on it sometime. So that's the contemplation of mind objects, which is to start seeing patterns in our experience, to start understanding our experience in terms of certain categories, which are other categories that the Buddha taught the five hindrances, the five aggregates, etc., seven enlightenment factors. So that's like a whirlwind tour through the mindfulness sutta, and it gives and this, this gives very detailed instructions of what to do. If you follow these instructions, you will pay attention in a way that frees the mind. That's what it promises at the end of the sutta, very succinctly. So, so much for the overview. Why don't we take Could a look at the sutta? The second one, second foundation. Feeling tone. Feeling tone. Yeah, feeling tone, body, feeling tone, mind, and mind objects, or dhammas is actually the word. So Chris wanted to take us through the introduction of this. Right. So I've got a handout, and um, the handout here is actually a different version than either of the ones you may have looked at oh, so fantastic. far. Oh, fantastic. I love multiple versions. Is this, there enough for me to take one? Yeah, there's actually, okay. you could have this one. Okay. This is not two-sided. Okay, great. And um, if you look at one side of that, is actually an outline of the whole sutta and showing how it could be broken down. And um, we won't really have time to look at that in any detail tonight. But what it shows is that there are a wide range of practices. In case you wondered if there was more than mindfulness of breathing, well, yes, <laughs> there is. Um, 
But if you turned over to the excerpt from the sutta, uh, so I'd, I'd like to go over tonight the introduction because it's something that I think a lot of times when we read a sutta like this, we kind of just breeze through the introduction because we want to get to the meat of it and don't realize that there's some very important information right up front here. So would someone be willing to read those first three paragraphs um, of the introduction where it starts with, Thus have I heard? Sure. Yes, thanks. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country at a town of the Kurus named Kamasodama. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness, covetousness, and grief for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Thank you. Yes. So you read the Bhikkhu Bodhi version, which you may have noticed is different than the Analio version, if you were looking at that yeah. handout. <laughs> slightly um, different. Slightly, yeah. but not, yeah. not vastly different. Yeah. Um, so this, the second and third paragraphs are often ref- have referred to as, the second one as the direct path, the third one as the description. So he makes a very bold statement in that second paragraph. This is the direct path <coughs> to realization. Like, this is it. Um, some translators have translated that as, this is the only path, which um, both Analio and Bhikkhu Bodhi have problems with that. And others have translated as, this is a path that goes in one direction only, mm-hmm. which I really like, because sort of like, once you go on this path, it's only going one way. You're only going to Nibbana. That's where it's going. <laughs> so if you're on it, that's where you're going. Um, and, I, and I like that. That's a, that's a nice thought. So it goes on from there, and notice it talks about surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, disappearance of pain and grief. So those terms come, if you're familiar with the Four Noble Truths, um, those are part of the Noble Truth of Suffering, sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair. Um, So he's saying, you know, this practice allows us to surmount suffering, right? And then he says, attainment of a true way, or the um, (coughs) handout I gave out was a true method, um, and I like that it was interesting that Analio chose the term method instead of way. Some people use path. Because um, method sort of says a different thing. It's a little, a little different feel to it. 
Um, what, when, you, when you hear true method, what is that, how does that feel to you? What is, what's your response to that versus true path? Does it feel any different to you? Yeah, method to me has to do with something that one engages in uh-huh. actively, uh-huh. whereas a path is more just laid out for you to walk on. To walk or follow yeah. without, it's more passive, the other one's more active. Right, yeah. Yeah, Analio has, that's very interesting, Analio, I think, spends, there's a, a book by Analio called Sadipatana, the, the Direct Path to Realization, which was actually his PhD thesis. Uh, <laughs> it's very scholarly, lots of references to other suttas, and he has uh, at least one, maybe two chapters just in that one paragraph. <coughs> but the true method piece has this um, resonance with other suttas, where it has to do with understanding what's called dependent origination and seeing the way out of dependent origination, that this was a true method to escape the wheel of samsara. So that's another resonance of this word method that's in there. And one of the things about these suttas, even though, as Kim said, it's very detailed, it's also very dense. There's a lot in here, and... It's helpful to read some of the commentaries to really get an understanding, even like if you have this book, to read the notes uh, in the back of the book to really get more of a feel for what this is referring to. Um, And then it says, you know, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, so namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And so it's, no, he's very clearly saying this is a direct path to the realization of Nibbana. The next paragraph is referred to as the um, description. So it's kind of like a high-level, very succinct description of what the sutta is about. And so for each of the four foundations, he has the same description. Uh, For instance, Bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, Ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So there's that repetition, body as a body. So he's making very clear, when you're practicing with the body, that's what you're focusing on. That's where your your awareness is focused and you're kind of tuning out the rest of it. And I I think this is why... um, Tan Jeff uses the term frames of reference. Because if you think about it, at any minute, at any moment, we're only having one experience. We're having this experience. But with this practice, we're taking our experience and we're just looking at one facet of it. So from Tan Jeff's point of view, we're taking like one frame of reference, the frame of reference of the body, and we're not paying attention to all the other facets of the experience that's going on at that moment. Then feelings, we're paying attention to just feeling tone, we're not paying attention to the rest, and so on. So he says, contemplating the body as a body to, to kind of reinforce it. It's the body we're focusing on when we're doing that contemplation. Then he uses these terms, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, or as Anamio has it, has it diligent, so he chose a different 
translation for the term, the Pali term, was atapi. But he chose diligent versus Bodhi and Tanjef, um chose ardent. So to you, what's, what's the difference between ardent and diligent? Does those, those feel different to you? Diligent has less um, affect to it. Like ardent means you're really like sort of burning with passion to do something. Uh-huh. Diligent seems like you're just you know plodding along, kind of plugging along. Uh-huh. Um, but that's what it implies to me. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Anyone else? No, diligent seems obligatory. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I like ardent because it it to me it points out this sort of love of the practice, love of the Dharma. You know, we talk about someone being an ardent lover. Well, we can be ardent lovers of the practice. And to bring that ardency up when we sit down to practice is, is worthwhile. So he's saying, you know, bring up that ardency in your, or your, at least be diligent, you know. And diligent has that, that of, like, sticking with it, you know, staying with it. Don't, don't be lazy, you know, don't just kick back, but really... Be diligent about it. So fully aware, fully aware. That's um, the Pali term is sampanjanya. Um, it's often translated as clearly knowing or clear comprehension. So it's that really being aware of the object, like bringing it clearly into focus. Not you know sometimes we might be. In, aware of what's going on in our body, but it, it might be a little fuzzy, you know. But here, just like really bringing our attention to it and clearly knowing what our experience is. And then this this term mindfulness, which we are all hopefully familiar with, but, you know, what is, what is mindfulness? What is it to be mindful? What, what, how would you define mindful? It's kind of a layered term, really. Any thoughts? Uh, my sense of what mindfulness is, is as objects or actions come into my consciousness, I'm aware of them. And it's not putting them aside, you know, pushing them aside. I just allow them in. I'm mindful of what's going on, and I watch it pass. Mm-hmm. And then something else is always coming up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's being aware of what's arising in the mind at yeah. any given moment. Okay. Well, yeah, I was just going to add that. Yeah, just moment after moment after moment. The changing uh-huh. quality of it. Right. Any any other? Yeah, I think that the lack of judgment or aversion is usually uh-huh. considered as part of mindfulness. Right, and that's actually what this next little bit about putting away covetousness and grief is that lack, lack of desire or grief Clean. for what's coming up, you know, just like having a more detached awareness. Any other thoughts about mindfulness? Yes. I first heard the term about like, be mindful while eating our lunch. Mm-hmm. So we were not taught to talk to one another, mm-hmm. but to pay very much attention to the different textures and flavors. Mm-hmm. Of the food, mm-hmm. and to be mindful your whole life right. would be really exhausting. Exhausting. <laughs> huh? Well, it, it certainly takes effort. At, at at least you know when you when one is developing 
mindfulness, and especially trying to develop con- continuity of mindfulness like that, it certainly takes effort to get, get that going. But you, you're also pointing to this other piece of mindfulness, which has to do with remembering. You know, remembering to be mindful. You know, if you take a certain object on, remembering that this is the object, and when the mind strays off, bringing, bringing the awareness back. So it has this remembering quality. And it has another quality, which is, which is sometimes not highlighted so much, which is referred to as guarding. That is guarding the mind, keeping um, unwanted things out. Um, has, you know, one of the similes that's used is it's like a guard at a gate to a city, watching who's coming in and not allowing like the bad guys to come in, only the ones that are wanted to come in. And this, this has to do with the idea of guarding the sense doors, um, where you know, so we talked a little bit last week about the idea of wholesome and unwholesome. So this idea of guarding the sense doors, of not attending to unwholesome um, impressions, which could also be thoughts, you know, for if, an, if a, th- a lustful thought arises in the mind, well, it, it's arisen, and one should be aware that it's arisen, but not to attend to it to the point where it actually starts growing, you know, and, and um, proliferating. So, so mindfulness has these qualities of, of that present moment awareness, of recollecting, and also of guarding the attention. I think of it also being being mindful of the it's it's being mindful of who you spend your time with, not to hang around with yucky people. That's right. What he says. Yeah, that was in that sutta, the Sigalavada Sutta. Yeah. Um, so I think we're probably, a, you know, at about as much time as we can spend with the introduction. But I just wanted to, you know, th- there's some important information right there about how we approach this practice to be to be ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, and let go of covetousness and grief. You know, one way I look at that is, you know, when you come sit down, let go of your worldly concerns for a little while. You know, put them aside as you come to sit down to practice, you know, they'll still be there when you come back. It's like when you go on a retreat, you leave your regular life behind for a while. And, you know, of course thoughts that may come up, but it's not what you're really there to attend to. I have a quick question about the free from desires and discontent, because that's the same uh, formula that gets used with respect to the jhanas, achieving concentration states. And so I was... I've always been a little confused here if they're saying you should first become concentrated and then turn to mindfulness, and that's what's bringing yeah. or that mindfulness on its own also frees you, you know, temporarily suppresses the hindrances, or is it that if you're mindful, you also become concentrated? And that you know, right. like I can't quite, it feels like concentration is sort of yeah. creeping in here, and yeah. I can't tell how. Well, mm-hmm. you know, Ashan Chai uses this very nice simile that mindfulness and concentration are like two ends of a stick. You mm. can't pick up one without picking up the other. <laughs> so by developing mindfulness, naturally we develop some concentration. And in, that, and in fact, doing um, Satipatthana practice 
can be a, a pr- preliminary to doing jhana practice. You know, it can be a way of helping to bring the mind to the point where one is ready to then move into concentrative absorptions. And this is outlined in the Anapanasati Sutta, the mindfulness of the in and out breath, where one can actually just use mindfulness of breathing to go all the way through the whole sati, but all the sadipatanas and into jhana. So you can't really totally separate mindfulness and concentration. They're not entirely separable. You have to have some concentration in order to practice mindfulness. So yeah, good good, good catch. <laughs> All right. Kim? Okay. Um, thanks. That was a great foundation um, in telling us how to approach each of these practices. So then there's a whole series of practices through this sutta. And I thought... Um, we might just look at one of them. I didn't pick one of the charnel uh, uh, ground contemplations, don't worry. <laughs> but I, I did pick the elements, which is an, uh, maybe an unusual one. And yet, it's one that um, I at least found myself naturally doing in some form in my practice. And later, when I kind of got more skilled at this sutta, I realized that some of what I was doing was echoed in this particular section. And so, um, would anybody like to read, either from the book, if you have it in front of you, or from the sheet, because the elements has been written here on the sheet. Anyone like to read this section? Sure. Thanks. Again, monks, he reviews the same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of the elements thus... In this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. Just as though a skilled butcher or his apprentice had killed a cow and was seated at a crossroads with it cut up into pieces, so too he reviews the same body. Right, in terms of the elements. So this is interesting, and this provides a pattern that is used several times in this sutta, and it's also fairly common in other suttas, is that something is described and then there's an analogy given for it. And the analogy may or may not be obvious to us in the modern West, um, but I don't know how obvious it was necessarily to people at the time either. It's a little bit poetic and intended to maybe get in a different door, essentially. But let's start first with this, these elements. In this body, there are the earth, water, fire, and air elements. So here, in the modern scientific world, we say, well, that's very nice, but I happen to know that there are 119 elements, or whatever there are now. Um, and, you know, we talk about the carbon element and the nitrogen element. But, you know, what he's referring to here are not um, physical entities. And this is an important part of practice, is that what we're learning to discern is how our experience is. How is the body experienced? I don't experience carbon atoms. I don't know about you or yeah. elements. So, and, But these descriptions, and I'll unpack them a bit because they are described in other suttas. They're not elaborated here, but there are suttas where he talks about what he means by each of these four. So we suspend our sense of what we think the body is, which is my head, my torso, my that back that's always sore, my aching knees, my 
arthritic hands, you know. Like, we have our idea of what the body is like. But these experiences are very simple. The earth element refers to solidity, rigidity, hardness, or its counterpart, softness, um, etc. So that feeling, you know, that sense that we have that the body is something solid and durable and sits in the chair and doesn't fall through it. You know, that sense. You feel the hardness against the chair. So he calls that the experience of earth element. And if we sit with our eyes closed, we can feel the hardness of the body, actually. Why don't you try it right now, actually? Just close your eyes and sense where you're sitting, like your, your butt against the chair. You can feel what's called hardness. That's an experience. Okay, you can open your eyes. And, and so then he um, says there's other elements. There's the water element. That refers to liquidity. So it does refer to things like you can feel the saliva in your mouth. You can feel it in your eyes. These are direct feelings of liquidity. But it also refers to cohesion. This is actually the most subtle of the elements. So unfortunately he lists it second. But it's the most subtle. It's a little hard to discern directly. But cohesion we can understand in that, consider sand that is um, dry, you know, like far up on the beach. It, it's just sandy. It's, I mean, it is a solid, but it's just little solid particles. And then as you get a little bit closer and it gets wetter, as you're getting closer to where the water is, it becomes solid, right? It's easier to walk on the slightly wet sand than on the totally dry sand. So what is water doing? It's making those little particles cohere. So this is the quality that he's picked out. You know, the body, because it's wet, coheres. If your body gets completely dry, and this is one of the Toronto Ground meditations, is the body turns to dust when it has no more water. So this is, if you can sense this quality in yourself, that you're held together because you're moist, that would be the water element. The fire element is simply heat. It's the fact that you feel warm or sometimes you feel cold, absence of fire element. So we have a temperature in our body, and we can actually feel that in meditation. If we sit, we can notice that, for example, where my two hands are touching each other, it feels warm in between, particularly warm because they're reinforcing each other. It's kind of warm in this room right now, mm-hmm. so I'm feeling that. And then the air element, which is motion. So it is literally, of course, the air coming in and out of the lungs, But it's maybe more like, if those of you do uh, Chinese practices like qi, like the flow of energy through the body, motion, um, the heart beating, the feeling of aliveness, that little subtle vibratory feeling in the body, that's all air element, as well as, of course, the, the breath, the motion of the breath. So when we sit, those four experiences account for quite a lot of our physical experience, don't they? And they would fit into one of those categories. And what this meditation is encouraging us to do is therefore to experience the body directly. What is the body actually saying to you? Your arm is is a concept. It's an entity that you have created. But you can feel the hardness of that part of your body. You can feel the warmth at the end of it, etc. So any comments about this? And has anyone done meditation on the body that is 
more of this direct experience type and less of my back hurts. Yes. I, I learned this in dance classes he did. In, in whose class? In dance. Dance class, class. yeah. And, um, it was just really delightful for me to have that as an option because I had many years of pagan practice and they were the same elements. Uh-huh. I had lots of uh, kind of experiences that I could yeah. attach onto them and, and also because of my... Wanting to um, befriend my body more, uh, I found it very helpful because I could describe them in terms of bodily processes. Right. And I could do a full body scan using the four elements. And I, I've used that as my startup for my meditation for quite a long time. Wonderful. It's just, just, it, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's really a great way to get into your body, to yeah. engage with your body. I find that when I do practice like this at this point, I don't think much about which particular element. I don't need the added concept of this is earth or fire or water. I just go straight to the direct bodily experiences of those of tingles, heat, pulses, motion, um, stiffness, these kinds of feelings. These start to help break down our attachment to the body. We're very identified with how we are, what we look like, what we feel like. Um, and this is pretty much just saying, actually, the body is a process. And there are other suttas that say that make a bigger deal out of the elements, saying the internal elements, which are the ones we experience inside, are not different from the external ones. You know, the, if you feel the motion of air in your throat, it's really no different than the wind blowing through the trees. What's the difference? It's the motion of air. And so we start to feel less personal about our body. And that is what this cow thing is about. <laughs> so, you know, okay, so we don't necessarily want to visualize a cut-up cow at the crossroads. Oh, why not? Um, you know, we go to the market, we see it. And so the idea is that these, um, these parts, these different experiences, uh, we can sort of break down the solidity, the wholeness, the, the entity that we call this body, which we tend to call me. <laughs> and it's actually these, these sort of more impersonal parts. It's a little bit odd to me that, um, the, that it's divided into physical parts, unlike the earth, water, fire, and air, which can't be actually separated so cleanly. But I think the idea is that we start to break up what's called the um, unitariness, unitarity of the body and see it more. How does that sit for folks? But unitarian, the body as a single As a unitary, unit. as an object, yeah. And My so body. is a, a unit of... Yeah, it's just like Kathleen was saying, is that it's more process. We tend to see it more as impersonal processes. It starts to change our perception of our body as this thing that's so uh, personal to us. I add one little thing? Please. Yeah, so we're not going to have time to go over the what's called the refrain or the insight. Yeah, we'll have to stop. But in this this particular practice, in ones like this, it really can help one see um, the arising and passing of experience because when one focuses in this way on the elements, we notice that they're always changing. You know, that there's this... It arises, it's there, it's passing. It really is this process. And 
So we get more in, in tune with sort of the impermanence, which is really the fact that that refrain recurs so many times throughout the sutta is sort of like he's making this point of pay attention to, to rising and passing. Pay, pay attention to impermanence as you're doing these practices. Yeah. We're going to talk about arising and passing and impermanence um, next session because it's, a, it's such an important insight. It's really a foundational insight in this practice. And the next session about uh, the fruits of practice will be that. Okay, why don't we pass these around? We're moving into the other practices. I think you can take one. Um, if not, that's fine. I, actually, I, I have a copy of this. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, I, I did bring a copy, so. Yeah. Okay, so we're moving on now. We haven't totally finished mindfulness, just so you know. <laughs> but um, we're going to move on to concentration. I love that we've already started to touch into the relationship between them, which is that they're not that separate, actually. They're not completely separate. Do we not have... I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, there's, they're coming. Okay, we do have the right number. Okay. Great. So, um, the Buddha did distinguish a second kind of training of the, um, of the mind in terms of kind of focusing it, uh, that he called, he called it jhana. Um, we often actually do, when we're first sitting down to meditate, and like if you're doing, say, a guided meditation, and you arrive at a center, and the teacher says, you know, sit down, and Focus on your breath or whatever it is. And the instruction will be, if you notice your mind wandering away, you notice that you've gotten lost in thought, just in case that happens, um, simply let go of what it was that you were wandering off into. Just let that be. Come back to the breath and start again. That's actually a concentration instruction because it's letting go of something that's not the object and coming back. The instruction for concentration is basically that you you don't pay attention to what it was that your mind went off into. You come back. You have a primary object. You come back to that. It's subtly different from noticing exactly what your mind is doing at each moment. Okay, so... Um, we're not going to have a chance to read all of these in great detail, but... It happens that the, the mind, and this is something that the Buddha didn't discover, it was known at the time. People were doing concentration practices in the Buddha's society. And so he um, was kind of building on what was something that was already there. It was understood that the mind has the capability of becoming what's called absorbed in an object. And if you give the mind particular objects, such as the breath, or there's actually th- about 32 of them that work well, um, it has a way of uh, being able to immerse itself in them to the exclusion of quite a lot of the rest of experience. There are debates about whether everything else is gone or whether you can still hear maybe a little bit. Um, But basically the mind has the capability of very um, strong alignment with one object. I'm being careful not to say laser-like focus because people practice incorrectly when you do that. And what I like about this is that you'll see from these descriptions that it's not laser-like focus. So there are, in particular, these things that are called the four jhanas, and those are um, states of absorption that are based on an object. 
Would somebody like to read this, just this description of the first jhana, which is a lovely image? Yeah, Anne. In the words of Lee Brasington. (laughs) (laughs) Furthermore, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, he enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by direct thought and evaluation. He permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water, so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the monk permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. And as he remains thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, any memories and resolves and related to the household life are abandoned, and with their abandoning, his mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a monk develops mindfulness immersed in the body. Ah, isn't that lovely? (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) And it only gets better with the other ones. Um, But let's pause for a moment here. I think we have enough time to talk about this a bit. First of all, does anybody recognize near the end, he remains heedant, artful, and resolute. Any memories and resolves related to the household life are abandoned. What does that sound like? That's the fir- that's that section from the Satipatthana that Chris went over that says it used slightly different language, of um, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful. Um, so this is slightly different. I think resolute is uh, added, and memories and resolves related to the household life are abandoned. That's abandoning covetousness, covetousness and grief for the world. So we start to hear through different suttas echoes. And this is one of the great pleasures of doing sutta study, is that you start seeing, oh, look, this is linked together. And um, so we see that these same qualities of mind start coming out. The mind starts becoming inwardly focused, not so concerned. And we, we can imagine, even if we haven't experienced this degree, we can imagine how pleasurable that would be. Again and again, it says rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal. Withdrawal from what? Anyone know? Everything else. Yeah, unskillful mental qualities, and also are are those uh, everyday concerns that run through our mind. We sit down and say, "Oh God, I need to take the dog to the vet next week. How am I going to arrange that? I'm going to need to get time off from work." Blah, blah, you know, okay, <laughs> etc. That's imagine not having that. <laughs> so this is a mind without that. And this image is so nice. We might use flour instead of bath powder. I don't think we do that. But, you know, putting a little moisture in. This is the uh, water as the binding element. <laughs> and it, um, the mind becomes saturated, moisture-laden, uniform, right? You take something that's sort of lumpy and ununiform and you make it all into one thing. So this is literally an instruction for how to do this. So with the breath... What might we do to induce something like this, besides bring the mind back every time it's wandering off? Does this image help you understand what you might actually do in your practice? Any ideas? 
for me if I do start sometimes feeling a little bit of <clears throat> PT, that kind of rapture mm-hmm. tingling, I I try to start pushing it around, mm-hmm. like actively sort of like massaging it around. So that's... Uh, that's exactly what this image is, isn't it? It mm-hmm. says, um, permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this body with PT. With mm-hmm. PT is the word for rapture in Pali. So if you're meditating and you happen to notice some pleasant sensation from beginning to settle the mind, and we've all experienced this, even if we haven't had jhana, we've settled the mind a little bit in 10, 15 minutes of meditation. Why not start appreciating that, expanding it, breathing it through the body? This instruction tells us that this is actually the right way to go in our meditation. We don't need to only sit there with mindfulness and say, Pleasure, pleasure. <laughs> we can do something with that, and that will be then more concentration practice, more gathering of the mind. I think that we tend to, even doing like body scans, focus on discomfort in the body. Yeah. And forget to notice the mm-hmm. places where there isn't a toothache, as you were saying. You know? Yeah, exactly. And there's a, there was a time when, in the Buddha's practice where he had been doing all this really harsh practice, actually not good practices, very ascetic, mm-hmm. punishing the body kind of practices. And at one point he remembered a time when he had had a very pleasant, peaceful experience, when he was a child, actually. And he had this sort of vague thought, oh, maybe that's a better way to meditate. <laughs> maybe that would be the path toward freedom. And, and then he actually had the profound thought, that pleasure is not anything to fear. <clears throat> We're so attuned to, you know, don't fall into the pleasure, you know, don't get attached, etc. It's like, oh, these, this kind of pleasure, there's nothing to fear from it because it's a wholesome pleasure. There, there's something that Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote where he talked about following the breath and it's like enjoying the refreshing breath. You know, uh-huh. to, instead of, oh, I better go back to my breath. Right. Like, oh. So all I have to do is breathe, and it's so refreshing, and you feel it suffused suffusing the body. The body. Yeah. yeah, it really helps me sometimes when I feel yeah. like I'm beating myself up for not getting back to breath in time. Yeah. And that's just the first jhana. <laughs> and then each one goes deeper and deeper. We won't have time to go through them. I'm gonna um, gonna move on. But what happens is essentially things. Uh, the, even though this itself is a f- quite a refined state, uh, what happens is that the coarser ele- parts of it are let go of. So you imagine this is, it says in particular, this has directed thought and evaluation. So there is actually thinking in the first jhana. Not thinking like taking my dog to the vet next week, but thinking like, you know, oh, am I paying attention? Oh, this is moving far. You know, sort of those subtle thoughts like, you might have a thought of, oh, I can even feel it in my foot now, something like that. Very simple. Um, and then we drop that mind, and you can feel that the, that goes away. The mind becomes silent. And, it, and then we have all these water images about lotuses in the water, which is really lovely. Um, a, a body and a mind that are completely nourished from within. That's what the jhanas do. So you should read through these if you haven't had a chance to. Um, read through them, and really imagine um, the continual refinement of the mind down into a very, very subtle, concentrated, beautiful state. It's very, very beautiful states of mind, and they're wholesome, they're part of the path. Fantastic.
<laughs> but we'll move on um, to heart practices. I'll be fairly quick on this one, but this is also um, wholesome and pleasant. This is on the next page. And you may be surprised about this. So would, would anybody like to read this first section, the one about loving kind or one about goodwill, also known as loving kindness? Yeah, Pratiba. A practitioner keeps pervading the first direction with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. Thus above, below, and all around, everywhere, in its entirety, he keeps pervading the all-encompassing cosmos with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. Beautiful. Yeah. So this is, um, first of all, is this, does this sound like how you've done metta practice? You have, yeah, some people have. Has anyone done metta practice like this? Yeah. 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 This is called radiating metta practice, and it's actually what's most commonly described in the suttas. It's actually also the practice that's described in the metta sutta, which we didn't do. <laughs> we haven't done yet. I wanted to do this one that includes all of them. This this particular set of four with these with the metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, those are the four main heart qualities, is repeated in a number of suttas. So I just pulled it out of I pulled out I chose three here that it appears in and it appears in even other ones also. Um, but what we learn tends to be Focus on yourself, a benefactor, a friend, a neutral person, and a difficult person, right? We have this series of people. And those practices are also described um, in different texts. There's one canonical text. Is it? A, yes, it's canonical, but it was said to be spoken by Sariputta, not the Buddha. And it's also described in what's a, um, a book called the Vasudhimaga, which is not a canonical text. It's a later commentary. But what's in the earliest texts, what's described is this radiating practice. Very beautiful practice. And what they mean by the first direction is one of the cardinal directions. I think the first one is supposed to be the east. And then um, you go around the second, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. And so that would be just all the way around, and then so above and below, around and everywhere. So we're just creating this entire sphere around ourselves into which we imbue with goodwill. There aren't people mentioned in this. Has anyone, has anyone who has done practice like this, can you describe um, how it is or any results of it that you've noticed? How does it unfold? Well, I like to chant it. Uh-huh, yeah, it's a, it is a chant. Mary Grace used to do that. Starter chant, too. Yeah. What does it feel like to do that? Like, what effect does it have on you? Well, you know, I I think I I got more out of it once I heard you describe in another class about radiating, because I knew it was radiating, but then I was like, well, you know, yeah, it it is more, yeah, to to focus on, on the actual physical, yeah, it's very much like meta, but it also brings in things that are wider than meta. Yeah. And, and, uh, 
and I think it it helps to have um, some kind of embodiment of it when you're doing it. That helps me anyway. Yeah, that's what I like about it too. Is that it's very physical, you know. And mm-hmm. when you're radiating, you can imagine radiating from your heart, for example. Well, it, if you really get direct, it passes through your body first. <laughs> so <laughs> you are getting the radiation, and then it's going. However far, you don't have to get to infinity. Um, <laughs> eventually it says you should, but whatever. May not. It's fine. But it, um, I find it's very opening. You know, it has, because I'm imagining all these directions and opening myself to that and, and you know, expand, extending myself out into it, it has a way for me of um, making the practice feel like something that I can then carry into the world and it actually is some, somehow around me. And I feel that with people who have very strong metta, if you've ever been with a teacher who has done that very, very deeply, you can feel in the room, right, when a person like that has, some of you are nodding, that much heart opening. So I feel like this practice um, kind of points toward that. I feel it's, it's very empowering because it's so active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it says we can generate this, basically. We don't have to sit there and create a relationship with another person, which might be complicated, and then we have to remember to focus on them. I find it simpler. I guess the challenge of it is then you have to apply it to specific people. It's very nice that we can sort of say, oh, I love radiating metta to everybody, and then it's like, oh, but my neighbor, you know, it's like, it does actually have to apply to real people in our lives. So that's maybe the advantage of getting a little more specific. I think maybe those later commentaries noticed that people could have great, wonderful radiating metta, but still be annoyed at their roommate. This one also, it ends every phrase with without hostility and without ill will. It's a great instruction. And, and if, if you really take that to heart, it is kind of an antidote to your, like, oh, yeah. moments where you like, realize, oh, I'm feeling... Yeah, this is another one that's dense. Like Chris used the word dense. Every one of these instructions could be a lot of practice, right? So, um, yeah. I sort of uh, do a radiating practice where I try to combine it with some of the particulars. I, I do a, a visualization, so kind of a liquid, warm liquid sunlight, you know, spark in the chest, goes out, 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 and, and then, but as I imagine it going out, as I sort of in the map, in the sense as it goes out, as I encounter specific people, you know, like it's, right. um, uh, you know, yeah. like my mom's husband in Carson City or something, right, who I have troubles with. It's like, oh, okay, there's that person, you know, in, you know, sort of imbue yeah. them with this feeling, really become, and so then I sort of like, you know, take a trip around the globe as I expand out, mm-hmm. and then once it's bigger than Earth, then it's kind of a little fuzzier what you're doing but um for me but uh. <laughs> yeah i think the intention is that when it's radiating it's supposed to you know pass through all the creatures in yeah. that direction and you can imagine them i found it hard not hard but the challenge and what i realized it kind of hit at once was there's balance and in listening to some teachings and hearing that talked about the balance when it comes to that loving kindness and metta is it can be too much in one direction, and then you know it's 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 just not it's not right. It's a little more. It's too much, and taken as you know overtly sexual or however that person takes it or romantic. And so it was nice to hear that because it wasn't talked about, but I was experiencing where it was taken differently or 
somebody was thinking it was more romantic. Uh-huh. And so, you know, it was good to hear that and, and then read more on that and practice it. Yeah, to have specific often. words around it to guide. And then I think maybe to your point, the reason that might be the reason why there are all four of these, including equanimity at the end, um, to balance. Equanimity is often said to provide wisdom and sort of round out these more ecstatic heart qualities, the first three of the loving-kindness, the compassion, and the altruistic joy. They're then balanced with equanimity. So this gives you a sense that the Buddha felt that it was important that our hearts open in our practice. We're not just um, doing this all by ourselves, on our cushion, not imagining the other creatures around us. And, of course, these qualities are needed for ourselves also in that this practice opens up so much of our stuff, mm-hmm. our unskillful mind states, our difficult memories, and everything else. Um, these practices are enormously helpful for transforming our own suffering also. Just a really softening and juicifying our practice, <laughs> if you will. Of course, we could do a whole course on this. And we did. We did meta last year, didn't we? But... Um, since we don't talk about them much, let's go on to the reflective practices, which Chris is going to talk about. Right. So, are those in the handout? The they are. Okay. Yeah. Good. Right. So Actually, the reflective practices are ones that um, aren't taught very much, um, although they are certainly talked about in the suttas. Um, and I think you know these can be very skillful practices. Sometimes we, I think we feel or we get the impression that there's something wrong with thinking. You know, that, that part of the, the goal of our practice is to stop thinking. And yet here's a practice that is really based around thinking, about using that part of our mind um, in a skillful way. And it actually can be uh, an antidote to scattered thinking where instead of letting the mind just wander all over, if you're having trouble focusing and being mindful or concentrating, to actually notice that the mind's very scattered and to purposely take on one of these reflections as a way of using that mental energy in a skillful way. So this particular sutta, notice this from the AN11, so it's talking about actually 11 um, reflections, five of them which are just summarized in one paragraph, and then the rest, the other six, are um, defined in more detail. So, um, since we are tight on time, I don't think we'll read the first paragraph together. That's the setting where the Buddha is um, staying among the Sakyans. And by the way, he was a Sakyan himself, he was a Sakyan prince. So I guess he was close to home at this point. And um, from the description, it sounds like it was the rain retreat, rains retreat. So they, during the rainy season, they would basically be on retreat because it was hard to walk around the countryside when it was raining so much, so they would be on retreat. And the, the monks were sewing robes for him and for each other probably. And this man came named uh, Mahamana or Mahanama, and asked about what are the good dwelling places for the mind or places of abiding for the mind. Um, you know, wh- where should we live with the mind? And so 
then the Buddha goes on to say, um, if someone would read the next three paragraphs, um, or two paragraphs in just one sentence, would someone do that? Yes? Uh, starting with Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Excellent, Mahanama. Excellent. It is fitting for clansmen like you to approach the Tathagata and ask, for those of us living by means of various dwelling places for the mind, by means of which dwelling place should we live? One who is aroused to practice is one of conviction, not without conviction. One aroused to practice is one with persistence aroused, not lazy. One aroused to practice is one of established mindfulness, not muddled mindfulness. One aroused to practice is centered in concentration, not uncentered. One aroused to practice is discerning, not undiscerning. Established in these five qualities, you should further develop six qualities. Okay, thanks. He would stop there. So, in that one paragraph, he's talking about five qualities. Conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. And these are actually referred to usually as the five spiritual faculties or the five spiritual powers or strengths. And so these are qualities that are um, dwelling places for the mind. And they're considered somewhat foundational for practice to develop these qualities of conviction, energy or persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment or wisdom. The, the Pali term here is panya, which means it can be wisdom or discernment. Um, and notice how mindfulness is in the middle there. And the, there's a reason because mindfulness is considered a balancing um, property. So it, it can balance conviction versus, or conviction or faith versus wisdom. It can balance energy versus concentration. And mindfulness shows up in that role in other places as well. It shows up in that role in the uh, seven, uh, seven factors of enlightenment. Um, it actually showed up in that role in the introduction to the um, Satipatthana Sutta where there was ardency, clear knowing, and mindfulness. Mindfulness being somewhat, again, balancing the other factors. So the, the, there's five qualities right there worth um, developing. And then it, it goes on to further develop these six qualities. And the six are uh, recollection of the Tathagata, or the Buddha, recollection of the Dhamma, recollection of the Sangha, recollection of your own virtues, rec- recollection of your own generosity, and recollection of devas. So we we won't be able to really go into great detail about any of these. And so I, I thought it would be interesting to look at number four, the recollection of your own virtues, because maybe some of you are somewhat new to practice, and you haven't really taken on the refuge of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. You're still a little like unsure what all that stuff is about. You're not sure you want to go there. But your own virtues, that's something you own. So would someone be willing to read, uh, starting with paragraph where it's number four, 
says, um, furthermore, there is a case where you collect your own virtues. Yes, Val. Furthermore, there is the case where you recollect your own virtues. They are untorn, unbroken, unspotted, unsplattered, liberating, praised by the wise, untarnished, conducive to concentration. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting virtue, her mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. His mind heads straight based on virtue. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calm experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. Thank you. Um, so, just that last sentence, in one who is joyful, rapture rises, etc., does that resonate at all with you? Does that sound like something else? <laughs> it's got some resonance to that, definitely. It also has some resonance to the development of jhana. Um, so, interestingly, by recollecting your own virtue can be an access to concentration. Um, but also notice how like, all of these qualities, it, he gives multiple descriptors. So here it's untorn, unbroken, unspotted, unsplattered, liberating, praised by the wise, untarnished, conducive to concentration. As a recollection, one could, first of all, recollect one's own virtue. So this is tying in some of what we talked about last time with the practice of sila and how important that is as a foundation for practice. So we can, you know, a lot of times I think in the West here, especially with our perhaps Judeo-Christian background, we're almost taught like, not to, you know, you don't go bragging about on the good stuff you did. But the Buddha taught that it's actually skillful to, to bring the, the good things we do to mind, to bring our virtuous behavior to mind. Not necessarily to go around bragging about it, but actually to bring it to mind and to appreciate the feelings that it, it generates in us. So, so just for a moment, just close your eyes. And if you, if you can, <laughs> think about your own virtuous or ethical behavior. Think about your in, even just your intention to be non-harming. Bring that to mind. How does it feel? What happens inside when you bring that to mind? So any response to that? Anything happened just that short time? Yes. It's just a sense of relief from... Um 
negativity. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, I felt the sense of compassion. Huh. More than like when I tell myself I'd be compassionate, that telling myself to do it is not very effective. But, yeah. but this um, thinking of virtuous qualities made me feel self-compassion. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I was I was reading some of the commentary on this sutta, and in the in the part on the uh, Tathagata, it talks about it describes the the Buddha as being worthy. Well, when we recollect our virtue, we get a sense of our own worthiness. That's what you were alluding to. We get a sense of that we are worthy. And in in our society, you know, for whatever reason, we grow up, a lot of us grow up with this feeling of not being worthy, you know, of poor self-worth, poor self-esteem, even self-hatred. And this recollection of our virtues can really help to counteract that. It can help to heal that. We can be, tend to get a sense of our own worthiness and that we too can do this practice. We too can experience what the Buddha experienced. That it's not just some exceptional being, but we all have that capability to experience that. And then the descriptors. You know, um, you could take any one of these descriptors and just use that as a recollection. You know, I... When I read this, I really like that untorn. Do you ever have that feeling of being torn about something? You know, I'm, I'm really torn whether what to do here, or I did something. I'm really torn about that. I'm not sure that was the right thing to do. But when one is really acting, speaking, or even thinking based on non-harming, based on practicing right speech and right action, based on following the precepts, it gives a sense of wholeness, of integrity, of not being torn. And it's really very settling for the mind, and it can help when one reflects on that feeling of wholeness, integrity, untorn. It can help one to settle the mind and as, you know, as a meditation by itself or as an entrance to developing more concentration or or more mindfulness. Um, and, he, and he says that at the very end, it's conducive to concentration. That to recollect our own virtue is conducive to concentration. Um, and then he goes on, that next part, did you recognize um, his mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion? So... That's pretty familiar, probably, right? You know, the, the defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion. So when we reflect on our own virtue, we're not overcome with greed, hatred, and delusion. And we get a sense of the Dhamma. So we get a sense of the path. We get a sense like, oh, I see how this works. You know, at least some sense of it. You know, we start to feel like, Oh, this practice of sila, of, of virtue, of um, ethical behavior, you start to see how that fits on the path, why, it's, why it is presented as a foundational practice to the path. Um, and then, of course, as I've said, you know, it goes into this development of 
joyfulness and then rapture, um, growing calm, being at ease or happy, and then the mind becomes concentrated. This series of joy, rapture, calm, happiness, concentration is actually one that shows up in suttas and other places. And it's, it's not just a nice theory. This is, actually works. <laughs> you know, this actually, if you want to develop concentration, first starting with something that brings up a sense of wholesome joy and then allowing it to develop into rapture and then that, allowing that to actually develop into tranquility, which naturally gives a feeling of happiness, will naturally lead into concentration. Then concentration just develops. Um, there's a, another sutta. You know, these, it's amazing. As you read more and more suttas, you see, start to see, as Kim mentioned, how they all tie together. There's another sutta um, called the Upanisa Sutta, where mm. this is the first half. It's called Liberative Dependent Arising. And it describes how to go get off the wheel of samsara, how to go from suffering to liberation. And this going from joy up through concentration are the, like five of the first five steps on that. Actually, the first step is, starts with faith, which then leads to joy, etc. Liberation in 12 steps. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I think that's all. I want to say any questions about that so far. I think Kim wants to... Upanisa? Yes, it's the sutta, it's often called Transcendental Dependent Arising or Liberative Dependent Origination. It might be SN 1223. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. And there's a very nice dissertation on it on Access to Insight by Bhikkhu Bodhi, where he goes into great detail on it. It's a wonderful sutta. One that's not taught a whole lot, um, but it's it's really a wonderful. I read the Bhikkhu Bodhi thing from your recommendation when you taught this on a, at a Monday night set. Oh, and it yeah, was, uh, yeah. It was very good. Yeah, I recommend it. Yeah, I have a question about these recollection practices in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that there's compared, I feel like, to both mindfulness and concentration, where there's very specific practice instructions, and mm-hmm. I feel like, oh, I can learn how to direct my attention, and I can do that. Here, it just is. There's it tells you all the good things that will come from it, but it right. doesn't tell you how to recollect right. a virtue. You know, like I find when I try to do these that it's like, you know, recollect a time you were generous. And then I'm like, well, how big or small does it have to be? <laughs> oh, and I can remember a time I didn't live up to it. And, and then I just yeah. start, you know, and I start getting really tight. And, yeah. and it just like, it doesn't work for me at all. Ah. These kind of things, because I don't, I mean, it doesn't say how to recollect it. Okay, so, so you just, might... Um, yeah, you might actually try starting with the recollection of the Buddha, Dhamma, or Sangha, mm-hmm. which are not. You can't, you know, you can't criticize yourself about mm-hmm. the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Really, like mm-hmm. you weren't, you know, being a good Buddha that day or something. <laughs> I suppose you could, but um, but you might start with those. And the the um, the way to do it is first of all to read through that section. And if there's just one word or one phrase that resonates with you, to let the mind rest on that and to notice how that resonates in the mind. Um, to notice you know, what it does in the body. 
what you know what kind of sense you get from it um, and that's a, a place to start with it after that you could you know maybe go into another one of the words or get a you know a larger sense of what who the who the buddha was if you're doing the buddha you know what it what it meant for there there to be a buddha in the world and how that has you know been a gift to so many people for 2600 years and how that feels and then also to think and i too could have the experience that he he had that that he never claimed he was a god he never claimed he had some supernatural powers and he said you know if it weren't possible i wouldn't ask you to do this but because it is possible I do ask you to do this. <laughs> so it says, I can do it, and you can do it too. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, maybe some of those, the reflections that are less personal might be a place mm-hmm. to start before you, if, you know, if when you try to do virtue or generosity, you start getting into a lot of self-judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, it may be that reflective practices right at that moment are not the right thing to be doing. Now, with um, presenting these different means of practice, what we're doing is is showing that there are various, it's like having a toolbox, and you have different tools, and you can choose what, what is skillful in a given moment. You know, and, and, and as one becomes familiar with practicing with the different tools, um, you become more adept at going, oh, you know, my mind is like this right now. It's very scattered. And it might be useful to do some reflective practices to sort of bring it, at least bring it down a little bit from the scatteredness and then move into mindfulness. Or if you want to do concentration practice, and, and but it's just not working, you know, well, maybe what I really need to be doing is just mindfulness of whatever arises since my mind isn't, willing to stay with one object and different objects keep coming up. Maybe I just need to do kind of a bare attention and be aware of whatever's there and letting it arise. Um, as far as, you know, there's a there's a nice short talk, well, not short, there's a nice talk <laughs> by Ajahn Suchito on uh, Dharma Seed, but he's talking about the five recollections, the recollection of um, illness, old age, death, loss and karma but at the beginning he, he talks you know just very nicely about you, you do a little bit of the recollection you don't have to do a lot of it and then just turn inward and see how is that resonating you know what's my mood like as I do this you know what am I feeling as I do this what do I feel in the body um, to make it more embodied I think is helpful you know if the mind really wants to spin off Try to make it more embodied, and, the, and that that affective quality is the affect is sort of like that bridge between mind and body. You know what? What's the affect? What you know? What kind of feeling? What kind of mood? And then you know what's happening in the body as I do this. That can be a way to approach these recollections um, to get it away from just spinning off into you know proliferative thoughts. Kim, do you have any other thoughts about that? No, that all sounded very good. I'm glad you brought up the five recollections because we gave you the, the like 
positive <laughs> recollections here. <laughs> but uh, the Buddha was big on recollecting death, actually, as a great motivator for practice. Um, okay, so we are um, at the end, and I just wanted to mention then that, as before, you'll get an email within a couple days with some suggested readings for next time. Our theme for next time, since we did foundations and then we did all these practices this time, is we're going to talk about the fruit. If you do all these practices, what transformation do you go through? What happens to the mind? Where are we headed with all of this? And the Buddha was um, explicit about that. There's no secret. Uh, We're going to free the mind from suffering, and so we're going to talk about the elements, uh, the insights that come with that, and something about Nibbana also. Are there any last questions or any comments? for you, and if I have to miss the last one. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Freedom is yeah, not dependent on any sorry. particular conditions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unconditioned. What were the five recollections that you... Yeah, so, so the five recollections, if you, if you um, go to Access Insight or even just Google the five recollections, you'll find it. Um, so it's the recollections go like... Um, I am subject to death. I cannot avoid dying. I am subject to illness. I cannot avoid illness. I, yeah, those. The five remembrances are sometimes called. Remembrances. Yeah. And is that talk you mentioned on YouTube? Or that the talk that you mentioned about the five recollections? Uh, oh, it's on Dharma Seed. Oh, it's on Dharma Seed. Yeah, it's, it's Ajahn Suchito. If you, if you go to Dharma Seed and go to talks, just, put, just um, search recollection, and you'll okay. come up. There's also... Three very nice talks there by uh, Shaila Catherine on recollecting the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Very okay. nice talks. So before we depart, oh. could we just take a moment and do some dedication of merit? I always, because what we've been doing is actually practicing together. Even though we're talking a lot, it's still practice. So we can dedicate the merit of our practice. So, and uh, speaking of radiating, taking a moment to... Be in touch with your kind heart, your goodwill, allowing it to radiate outward throughout your body and outward in all directions, above and below. Many merit we've gained through our practice go to the benefit of all beings everywhere, that all beings will be free from suffering, not one left behind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.